All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of On the Margin. Today, I am joined by George Goncalves, the head of U.S. macro strategy at MUFG. George, welcome to the show. Great to be on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. I'm really excited. You uh, you put together a really great presentation for us today. So if you're following along via video or via audio, I highly recommend actually head over to the YouTube and check this out because George has put together some some really great charts and walked us through, I think, one of the more compelling uh, sort of descriptions of what's going on in macro today that I've heard in, in some time. Basically, um, George, I would love to sort of get your version of the big picture here. You've put a bunch of your main views kind of on this on this slide, and you could just kind of walk us through sort of the high level of, of what we're looking at here. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll get into this more in detail as we go through the PowerPoint. But there's a big debate going on right now. Um, you know, one, you know, there's uh, this idea that you know, these historical recession indicators that you know we've relied upon for basically every single business cycle or you know pre you know post world war II, but even before then a lot of signals that kind of confirm if you're heading into a, a slowdown but at the same time I, I believe that you know this cycle has been so unique for so many different reasons which we obviously know post pandemic uh, you know the, the sort of fiscal as well as monetary response and now the unwinding of that uh, or the lack of fiscal response uh, you know, has led to pro- probably what really what took place was an extension of the prior business cycle, which we can get to in a, in a moment. So I think that's important because that, that really sets up the stage for uh, there was really wasn't a really kind of a cleansing process on the credit side. Mm-hmm. If anything, we continued along with the same sort of credit issues that never got resolved. Uh, I do think we'll, we'll get into in a moment as well that although the one last kind of coincident indicator that's, that's been suggesting that the economy is relatively healthy is the jobs market. But even there, there's cracks that are forming, and I think that maybe it's not as robust as many believe. And um, you know, inflation is heading in the right, dire- you know, the right direction. You know, it's the hard part will be like where does is it settle at, and you know, what's going to be that level where you know the Fed's either going to feel okay to start going the other way, or is there some other catalyst that forces the Fed's hand, or maybe it's a combination of the two. Typically, you kind of get to a situation where inflation can just collapse out of nowhere because you're like something bad has happened in the world. And then you see a real uh, crash in prices, um, you know, and, you know, the big one here, which I think also has been kind of percolating out there is the idea that the, somehow the U.S. can decouple from the rest of the world, ROW mm. being the rest of the world. The rest of the world is decelerating and it's going to be hard for the U.S. to overcome that if truly we're starting to see a global recession starting to form in different areas of the world. Um, we'll get into the Fed in a moment uh, as well. Hopefully it'll go through their, you know, their policy stance right now. But, you know, in many ways, you know, the Fed's aggressiveness on their tightening side almost feels like they're fixing one po- you know, one policy mistake from the past with another uh, by not really taking into account these uh, you know, long and variable lags, as well as the ongoing QT. They don't like to focus on the QT, but it's still there. And I think they really want to extend you know, the shrinking of the balance sheet as long as they can. Uh, and then on the flip side, one of the things which kind of ties into like the market's um, reaction function is... You know, people think that, well, if things get bad enough, the Fed will come and save the day. I think that also has to be thrown into the dustbin. The idea that the Fed's going to come and do QE again, as well as slash rates back to zero after having just seen what they've done here. I think it's it's a relatively low probability. And if they do, that means something really bad happens. So you, you don't want to be kind of cheerleading that on. You want to avoid a worst case scenario. And so in many ways, you know, the Fed massive easing campaigns of the of the last you know two decades i think that's probably also going to be hard to come by and in reality we'll start to kind of settle in 
and figure out what is really necessary for both the, the banking system and for the economy. And they're not going to come in and, and be as aggressive as before. Uh, they do have room, though. The good thing is they, they do have room to kind of tweak policy. But the idea that they're going to just do massive easing, I think that's also gone. And then, But the problem, though, like the risk markets still operate to that model that the Fed's always going to come in and, and save the day. Mm. I, and, and, you know, I, I, you know I'm um, a fixed income and rates uh, um, a professional, and, and my focus is primarily on the fixed income markets, uh, even though I'm a macro strategist. I, I look at the you know, macro strategy uh, through like a fixed income lens to kind of see like what the bond market is telling us. Uh, that's my area of expertise. And, and you know, the bond market is, has been skeptical, and I think they have the, the right to be at this point. Yeah, George, so much of what you just said there resonated. And I want to sort of move in order here because so much of what you put together just flows so nicely. But really, some of the points that immediately resonated with me was this idea that the U.S. can't just decouple from the rest of the world. And the idea of the Fed sort of fixing one policy error with another, kind of this cycle of overcorrection really resonates. And I'm excited to get there and dig in with you. I would love to kind of start here on you know the big picture, and you sort of described what we're seeing today as a continuation of sort of the old regime. And um, I would love to maybe explore what that is, and if you could define you know what the prior cycle sort of means to you, and how this is a continuation of it, that would be super super helpful. Yeah. So look, I mean, obviously there's there's elements that are unique to what um, we're experiencing now versus the the past cycle, which. Many like to define the 2009, 2019, which was the longest business cycle that we've had in, in, in U.S. history. Uh, of course, obviously, we had the, 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 the pandemic and the, and the health um, issues that came along with it and which you know, you know, led to a big disruption in the, on the economic side as well as on the health side. But you know, if you kind of put that aside and you focus on how the economy was evolving underneath, we were already, you know, in 2018, 2019, already seeing a deceleration in the economy. You know, the Fed tried to do emergency, uh, I'm sorry, um, insurance cuts, I should say. That's what they were calling it. They might end up doing that again in the future, calling it insurance cuts sometime uh, soon. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, they, they tried to soft land back in 2019 to 2020. And of course, nobody could foresee exactly what was going on there. But the yield curve was already telling you there was issues forming. The economy was slowing. You had a... You know, massive impulse on the other direction with the CARES Act and all the Fed easing, which in many ways kind of, um, you know, just elongated that cycle's uh, malinvestment period of, you know, many, you know, like 20 to 30 percent of, uh, of, the, of the Russell 2000. You know, you know, many of these companies can't afford the interest rates that we're going through now. And you know, these idea of zombie credits that can't afford their uh, interest costs based on free cash flow. Uh, you know that that really really was kind of postponed, in my opinion, uh, with the epic stimulus efforts that we saw there. So then that puts us into the current environment, which you know looked like a it looks like and has been acting like a you know classical boom bust cycle. Which you know, we had the massive reopening boom, all the stimulus, all the pent up demand, it burnt out, and now we're on the other side of it. With you know we had some inflation pressures, which. A lot of it attributed to the excess money printing and the shortage of goods as well as services and and, and that leading to an, an inflation uh, shock as well. The thing is, is that inflation shock you know, persistent? Is it going to stay with here with us for the next three to five years? Was it just like uh, specific to this time period? And we're going to go back to the 2019 or you know, post uh, pre uh, sorry uh, COVID world. Probably not exactly on the inflation front. That's probably what's going to be different this time. 
But nonetheless, I mean, the issues around demographics, the issues around just the way you know, structural features of our economy, I don't think that they were completely rewritten uh, just because of the, the pandemic. And so I feel like there's, um, you know, that, the, 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 especially on the credit side, the, like a lot of these issues were never really addressed. And we needed low rates for such a long time period to, to persist. Uh, and, and, and now that we don't have low rates and we have also wider spreads in credit, um, I feel like it does create which we'll get to more later on, like a have and have nots, access to liquidity, access to easy money or not. And all of that matters now. I think so like it so now I feel like you know what the Fed's actions have led us to now expose some of these realities. Where we haven't seen the full effect yet because it takes time to work its way through the system. And we live in a very impatient world where everyone wants to see, like, well, you know, there's a cause effect. The Fed did this, therefore something should automatically break today. Well, it takes time to kind of build up in the system. And I think it is. And so I think, like you know, we're going to expose some of these malinvestments over the course of the of the year into the next year, and that will eventually probably force the Fed's hand and go the other way. But until then, it's kind of this chicken and egg between you know, when do these when do these credit problems really surface? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And you know, I'm just sort of remembering here. George reminded me. Pretty sure the yield curve, the tens and twos, actually inverted before COVID anyway. So did that That's predict right. COVID? <laughs> you know, hard to tell, but that has been a pretty reliable indicator. I know, um, you know, some folks question its validity, but definitely seems to be proving up now. I would love if you could kind of walk us through for those who aren't following along via video, you sort of outline a couple of different perspectives here, right? Sort of ranging from the Jekyll and Hyde rose tinted glasses to the Goldilocks soft landing to the sticky CPI gray area and the markets will be having blues. And you sort of uh, outline sort of the stages of the impact on the macro economy what central banks will do, and then the market outlook. So obviously, there's a lot of information to go through here, but could you kind of just walk us through these different scenarios and then which camp you sit in? <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. So look, these are four of many camps that can exist. Let's let's be uh, clear about that. Uh, but I think this kind of captures a lot of what we're debating in, in the markets at this moment, which is, can we soft land? I mean, that's the ideal scenario. The Fed, I think all policymakers, their attempt and all their actions is to try to do the right thing. Sometimes they over-engineer it. And we end up uh, on either side of what was the intended uh, goal, right? So I think soft landing is the goal. I'm not sure they can they can have that <laughs> happen, considering all the legacy issues that we just discussed, as well as how much uh, prescription of tightening they put in place, as well as QT still ongoing. But Goldilocks is the aim. I assign a very low probability of that happening. Uh, I think we are bouncing along the bottom, very close to a recession, if not probably in one. Let's see how things look like in the next six months. But you know, and it's always a backward-looking assessment anyway, right? So things don't look that great. Uh, I think it's really just a jobs market that everyone focuses on. I'm more in the blue camp, which is, you know, if people you know visualize this on, on, on screen, they'll see like this table. And, you know, I think markets will be having a blue, you know, having the blues, I call it, at some point. Because the idea that we can dis, you know, decouple also from markets and the economy for a long period of time, that I don't buy either. So I think that you know the economy decelerating further and not having the Fed to come into the rescue anytime soon, and this higher cost of funding and credit uh, issues eventually uh, rising to the surface, you know, we'll we'll see the markets finally get that 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 message. Uh, but in my my opinion, that actually the markets having that kind of that last cathartic moment and realizing that hey, we're not in this virtuous sustainable recovery that we're actually seeing, we're going to see this final kind of flush out type move in markets will then allow the Fed to react to that sort of outcome, number one. And it would also kind of rip the Band-Aid kind of experience. And it would probably kill inflation. 
So in many ways, like having that last cathartic type move where I mean, it will result in sort of a, of a wealth destruction time period, but it kind of levels the playing field and cleans up some of these bad credits that are out there. Uh, and then the kind of the economy should be able to like, grow more organically and and the Fed will you know, try to re-steepen the yield curve, try to help the banks get back online with lending. You know, it's not going to be overnight. That 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 too will probably take a year or so process. But I'm much more optimistic on the you know the latter half of 24 into 25. But I think we're going through a transition period that you know we're just still dealing with. You know, again, decades of low rates. Then we had that massive stimulus injection uh, post COVID. Then on the flip side, the pendulum swings all the way the other with what the, the Fed has done. Things break in all these big uh, moves. Uh, so, I, but I think the, the sooner that that actually gets realized is probably better because the worst case scenario is really what I call here the sticky CPI, the gray area. Mm. You know, if I'm wrong on inflation and we you know we actually are in a stagflationary world and the Fed really can't address it at all and actually has to, actually has to raise rates even further, which I don't think they should, then we have a big problem <laughs> because markets are not ready for that. They're you know they're obviously ready for a Fed that can come to the rescue at some point. And then on the flip side, which I think, you know, what, which drives a lot of kind of the fear of missing out is that, well, things are great. And if they're not great, then, you know, the Fed will re- rescue. It's the whole Jekyll and Hyde of the market uh, and like viewing things from a rose tinted glasses. I think that uh, I, I assign a very low probability to that. And so I'm kind of skewed towards I'm either wrong because I get the inflation picture wrong and we're living in a stagflationary environment. Or we're going to have that cathartic move uh, sometime between now and the end of the year, early part of 24. And then we kind of you know, clean house and we move from there. Yeah, uh, I totally agree with that assessment, George. And I, I want to get on to, uh, you know, I I know you've got some thoughts on the job market and how that might not be the steady indicator or the the sort of sign of strength that many in the market think that it might be. But you've got some really great slides here on some sort of leading some macroeconomic indicators. And um, you've yeah. got a really great chart here of sort of the conference board leading index versus real GDI as a percent year over year change in mapping those together. You've got uh, bank credit shrinking. So happy to sort of take your lead here. But if you want to maybe call out a couple of these more leading indicators, I would love to know why you highlighted these and why they might support you. Yeah. And, and look, I mean, I think all of these and there's not, and there's many, there's plenty more that we can we can always look into. Maybe we can just look at the LEI versus GDI, real GDI on page yeah. 10. I mean, this is just a good good start because you know, there's again been a growing chorus of forecasters dismissing any sort of leading indicators that they're all somehow broken because of many many of the things I just described that we've kind of seen the pendulum swing around too many different directions that perhaps the economy isn't that weak and that these indicators are picking up on the wrong signal and therefore they're kind of biased at this point that these that we can't rely on these historical signals because something has changed dramatically in the economy. I don't buy that. I mean, I think, and, and the reason why I compared it versus real GDI, you know, just kind of looking through and a lot of the work I do is trying to figure out, is, is there any other corroborating evidence, um, you know, analogs and parallel sort of comparisons. And this looked pretty good to me looking at GDI versus LEI, uh, where the two of them are tracking together. And when they both are negative, we are likely in a recession or heading into a recession. I mean, it's worked since the 1970s. I mean, I've, you know, I think um, I share a view that some others do as well, that we, we, we're, we've been scarred by the big shock of COVID and how fast it was and, and how disruptive it was. And the same thing for 2008, 2009. We have these financial shock type recessions that we're so fearful of. More likely, this is more like the 2000, 2002 type period or the 73, 75 period. I think there's a lot... 
those are more standard uh, type of recession periods. They still hurt, but they're not as um, dis- you know disruptive and you know. And so I feel like like those are a better comparison points. But even back then, you still see the LEI worked as a signal, and so did the real GDI going either negative or close to zero. Either way, you know that is probably a better indicator of what the true health of the economy is if if income on a real basis is not growing. Yeah, I, I'm i in complete agreement with you there, George. And w- one thing that I think is worth calling attention to as well is we're, we're going to get into this in the when we talk about uh, sort of one, the Fed potentially trying to fix one policy or with another. But, you know, so much of what we're what we're going to talk about, especially when it comes to um, the the unemployment, the jobs market is backward looking. Yeah. Right. Um, so maybe you could talk a little bit about that. And if you if you wouldn't actually yeah, maybe mind, page 15, page yeah. 15 and then page 16, both of them kind of lead off each other well. Uh, and there's a few more here. So to, so yeah. maybe to tee you up on this slides, and I'm, I'm actually going to ask you to just do a little bit of definitions here because people kind of throw a lot of terms out. There's sort of jolts, right, as a job number. There's also continuing claims versus initial claims and all of this stuff. And I would love to sort of get your perspective on teasing out the signal from the noise here. But maybe we can kind of start with this idea of the, the white collar uh, hoarding recession, right, as you call it. And uh, why sort of a recession that's appearing in more white collar jobs might not be impacting, you know, the, the statistics as much as we might expect. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so first and foremost, um, you know, the higher paid jobs are less in terms of the overall population, right? Yeah. So I, mean, I think that's yeah. number one. But they do have a multiplier effect, which leads to consumption downstream, right? So, you know, wealthy individuals and people that are high paid will then consume more services and goods. And that, you know, obviously trickles down through the economy. So it's not to, to kind of poo-poo it, but it is still um, more of an isolated type white collar recession so far. A lot of it tech, financial. Um, we haven't seen you know, really construction job layoffs, and that's something that concerns me, especially after uh, you know, we're recording this on June 20th, right? Uh, we have the pretty big housing numbers, and everyone's trying to point yeah. to the idea that, well, look, see, housing is doing great. Well, because I think all the builders want to finish their work, and they're really they're getting stuff uh, done, and whatever, and whenever there's a window to produce, and there's demand now because not there's not that much supply in the housing front. But nonetheless, I mean, we need to see other parts of the jobs market see losses, not just in the white collar side. And I mean, many have mentioned this. So this is not an idea that's novel to me. But this, the idea of labor hoarding, I think, is a true is a true issue that uh, is out there. And I, and I haven't quite figured out the right term for this. Uh, some people, some I think, uh, the Wall Street Journal had an article saying a full employment recession, which kind of feels like an oxymoron. <laughs> There's no full employment recessions. So that means that we're not really in it yet. So we haven't seen the real job losses pick up yet. But if you look at this chart on page 15, you kind of scan over to the, the beginning part. Like in yeah. 2001, yeah. two, three, coming out of that recession, we actually saw the, the unemployment rate continue to go higher. So ironically, people think like, oh, once you get into a, re- a recovery, then jobs are going to come back. And then you know, when, once growth starts to tick up again, you see a, you know, a, a, you know, a full recovery in the jobs market. But in that period that people were calling that the jobless recovery, where you spent about two years post-recession still seeing unemployment rate high and actually ticked higher because productivity was being maximized and people were just kind of making the most of what they could with their current uh, labor force. This time around, for now, it feels like a labor hoarding, white collar specific recession. And we don't even know if we're in a recession yet or not. And maybe this is just going to blow over. But I do think that Comparing the unemployment rate, which is one of the, the, the slowest of the slow 
indicators within the jobs market data set versus the challenger gray, which is more of a forward you know, looking and actually real time, more not forward looking, but much of a real time indicator on an annual basis. Whenever the uh, challenger gray's layoff data goes higher and quickly, like it did now, as well as it did during COVID, as well as 08, 09, as well as in 2000, 2002, whenever there's a big spike there, roughly about a year later, we get a higher unemployment rate. So I think that, that this this one still holds true. It's not proven yet. And this is, again, goes back to what I said earlier. We're an impatient set of individuals now because we have social media. We have access to all this information. So we expect instantaneous reactions in the real economy. It takes time. Employers just don't go out and wholesale, lay off their whole staffing. They're trying to, they also have hope too that things are going to work out. And they're, and I think they're labor hoarding. Hey everyone, we'll get back to the show in a minute, but just wanted to let you know that we've got our permissionless conference coming up. This is the one that we do with Bankless. It is the biggest and best conference in DeFi. It's going to be in Austin, Texas this year, September 11th through the 13th. You've been in crypto for a while. You know that bear market conferences are the best conferences because those are the ones that all the alphas at. This year, we've got a phenomenal lineup of speakers and the topics that we're covering are insane. We're going to be talking about ZK Tech, rollups, account abstraction, MEV, app change, the whole suite of stuff. I cannot wait myself. So because you're a listener of this podcast, you're also going to get a discount. Type in pods 20 and you're going to get 20% off your ticket. Click the link at the bottom of this episode and go get it now because prices go up every two weeks. Yeah. And uh, so I, 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 I hear you on that, George. And honestly, if you're if you're not following along, guys, via via video, this is a, a very stark chart where you're sort of looking at the, the U.S. unemployment rate, which has spiked way up during COVID and has been on a steady stream down. But we're also looking at this challenger gray layoff uh, index, which has been really spiking at the same time that the overall unemployment data has basically remained unchanged. One thing I'd love to, to poke at you there, George, is you know, I, on the one hand, I could see, hey, it's been if you've been hiring for the last eighteen months or two years, there's a pretty good likelihood that hiring was your your biggest challenge, right? It was a big pain point for a lot of employers because the job market was so hot. It was really tough to get labor in. So once you have that labor in, I could see you you really holding on to it. On the other hand, we also know that what happened during the the post COVID era is that salaries went totally nuts, right? And all you hear about is sort of people complaining about the comp that people wanted, people wanted to work from home, yada, yada. So I could also see a scenario where, you know, now that it looks like demand is is waning into the future, and it seems like there might be the, the leverage might have shifted to the employers as opposed to the employee. You know, I also, you know, as, as a, it, it would make less sense to me to actually hoard that labor because, you know, I would think from the perspective of an employer, you could think if I just wait another six months, I'll just get this all on sale. So what, what would you have to say to that, that pushback? No, those are, those are, those are great points. Um, the, the, the former, um, and, and really that probably is what's been happening. You know, it, it, there's been challenges hiring, uh, you know, you know, skilled labor and getting the right person in the right spot. I think that is definitely true. And, and then that does kind of skew the behavior of, of management to actually, you know, at, at corporate America or even small and mid-sized businesses, they're just not going to turn around and start laying the people off just because they're seeing a slowdown in activity in their sales, right? They'll kind of allow some margin compression. And also, let's be honest, all throughout this period, and this has been the saving grace, which people sometimes forget about this. The saving grace for corporate America actually has been inflation in a weird way because they've been able to mark things up too. So you've had profit expansion, inflation kind of masked that a little bit. Yes, wages went up, but 
corporate America had decent earnings up until recently. Now they're on a steady decline because you're, now you're chipping away at, you know, you're having a slower, slower economy and you have a, you know, your, your costs are basically set or, or rising, especially on the, the biggest cost, which is your, uh, your, your labor that starts to kind of see the profit margin compression. But for now, like that's a, a slow process. And, and there's been you know, a lot of work saying that you just don't want to lay off people right away because you just don't know. You want to see through it. Like this idea, a lot of people will say, we're going to see through this. And then if it's a mild recession, we can kind of get through it versus just the highly disruptive nature of hiring and then firing and then retraining. It's, you know, it's, it's a lot of work a lot. On, the, on the part of, of, right? So I think that, that is definitely true to your point. Now, will there be leverage back to corporate America? And, and, and like, will they be able to then you know, see like slightly lower wages? I mean, in many ways, that's what the Fed is trying to engineer. They're trying to get right. wages to not create a, a price spiral, a wage price spiral. They're trying to avoid that. You know, that one, you know, the jury's still out. We'll see what happens. And it really will come down to, A, do we have the recession and the severity? Yeah. So I guess just looking sort of holistically here, George, I mean, how would you, if you had to sum up the state of the uh, the employment market in the US, I mean, how would you kind of do that? Because on the one hand, I, I hear you with there's there might be some labor hoarding and there's certainly been a sort of a jobs recession in terms of more white collar jobs, but we definitely haven't seen that in the the larger sort of data set. So if you had to kind of sum it up, I mean, what's the what's the current state and why why is it a little rockier than we might think? Yeah, look, I think it's it's solid on the surface, but cracks are forming underneath. Mm. I mean, I think that that's how I would sum it up. Maybe let's go to one or two more slides on the jobs market. This, sure. this is probably this is probably the area where I think most people that are bearish on the outlook get the most pushback, which is look at the jobs market. It looks great, so therefore everything must be great, right? But let's look at page seventeen, for example. This is looking at uh, hours worked versus multiple job holders inverted to kind of prove the point. Uh, I mean, many times when you're uh, again. Going back to what I described earlier, you've hired all all your staff. You're not going to turn around and lay them off. You might start cutting out back their hours, right? So there's one there's an element of that going on here. You can see the the gray line has been declining really uh, really quickly since uh, 2022 started, and all throughout this uh, year into this year. Um, and the red line kind of has a visual correlation with it that there's more and more multiple job holders. So uh, you know, be it people working two jobs because they want to have the flexibility or maybe because they're being forced to because there's no other real full-time employment. And you can't build a sustainable jobs uh, recovery based on part-time jobs. You need to have full-time employment. That's super critical. So I think these would be like two, two of, the, of the many cracks that I see. Uh, if we move forward, um, you know, there's you know, the temp workers. Many people have to kind of focus on this too. Temp workers have stopped rising. They're actually starting to head lower. When that happens, you know, shortly thereafter, we get higher unemployment rate. And then if we go uh, to uh, a chart that, you know, page 20, which I think will be really critical to tie in the the signal stuff that we were discussing before. Because yeah. again, there's a growing growing body of, of, of forecasters that are trying to dismiss the yield curve. And I think that's wrong. Uh, this is looking at the, and so what I do here on, on this chart on page 20 is uh, looking at the two big yield curves, the two's tens versus the three month uh, tenure, the shorter term one. And then I have the recession periods highlighted. So we can see that truly curves do invert typically before recession starts. So that's so far so good. The curve has been relatively on point with that. And then I try to combine what we're getting from the jobs market, which again, I, I think there's cracks forming. I just described a few of them, but another one is this, um, which, which, which is now two weeks running, we're seeing higher weekly claims data. So that's a higher frequency jobs data, right? So the weekly data 
is super crit critical to watch. It's been over 260. And then the other one is the continuing claims. So those that are on unemployment for a continuing basis, that's the purple line underneath the yield curve. And so what I found in my work is that whenever you see the continuing claims go from uh, improving, so improving would be negative, means there's less people on unemployment. When it turns, uh, when it crosses the zero mark and starts to go positive, that means that there's more people on unemployment. When that happens at the same time as the yield curve is inverted, it pretty much just tells you we're in a recession or we're heading into one. It has like this is like the like a, a good kind of an example of comp combining two different data sets to kind of make this point that you know the claims data is also signaling that we are likely in a recession or heading into one, and it, it happens exactly at the same time when the curves are at their most inverted and starting to re-steepen. Like so, like all these signals are there. So maybe they're all wrong, mm. and this time it's not mm. going to work out. I just feel like you know those that are dismissing uh, all this historical fact are doing it for some other uh, other reason. Yeah. George, this is such a great chart. And maybe you can just to add a little bit of color and maybe you can correct me if I'm incorrect here. But, you know, the twos and tens, that's typically what people talk about when they say the yield curve is inverting. That has a very good predictor of being a recession, but it's the three month and the tens that has, I think, a 100 uh, percent track record of predicting recessions. And I really like that you put continuing claims as opposed to initial claims here, because to me, continuing claims says these are people that, you know, consistently can't actually find work. Right. So I think putting these two things together just paints a, a great picture of where we're at just in terms of the economy. And this is, you know, what I what I wanted to sort of get your opinion on here. And we've highlighted it so much on this show. But, you know, unemployment is if you started off here, we know that monetary policy acts in long and variable lags. At the very beginning of monetary policy, if you charted out a series of reactions, then unemployment or the jobs market would be all the way at the end of this. And we know people yeah. ask, well, why did Powell you know, stay easing so long despite inflation starting to pick up above 5%? We know that he was looking at the labor market. That was at least part of what went into his decision. And that was lagging post-COVID in the wrong direction. And now we know that the Fed is probably looking at the labor market and they might be doing the exact same thing here, right? Where all of the forward-looking indicators, and we can get into it here because you've got some, some phenomenal charts, some of these leading indicators, they're pointing straight down. But the labor market, which Powell and the Fed pay a lot of attention to, is still being pretty stubborn. So would you say that's like about the, the state of where we're, we're at right now? Well, that's exactly where we are. We're in this point of um, ambiguity. Where we don't yeah. know. Like, they, And then this is true for the Fed. They don't know. Like, we're like, we need to kind of have our anchors of like what we're looking at. And we're still focusing on the job market potentially, you know, resulting in, in inflation becoming stickier and persistent. And therefore, you know, we're, you know, like these other indicators around us, although they have merit, you know, it's not really their, you know, their mandate per se to, to be guided by them. Right. So, so they're, they're focusing on this backward looking indicator. Uh, you know, the Fed has a very unique sort of mandate, both, you know, full employment slash, you know, uh, stable prices. And that's a really hard thing to do after the disruptions that we've had. And so the, the pendulum just keeps swinging back and forth. Eventually, they're going to they're get it right. But it's going to really re require um, a more um, activist central banking type world. They should just not be only in one direction. Like, so my view is that they're going to get rates, well, their rates are pretty high. And I think they, they should stop here. 50-50 um, on July, they should not be hiking considering the data that we're getting and the outlook that I kind of just went through. But nonetheless, they can do whatever they want. If they want to raise rates, that's going to be the first rate that they unwind it at some point soon. But, you know, like basically, you know, they're 
there, there, you know, they're at this point where it doesn't make sense to be, you know, creating further action, but they don't know any better. And they're going to, they're going to do that until they get it right. And I think later on, we'll, we'll find out that they're going to become much more activists with a little, like one for a couple of years, they won't hike and then they'll hike a hundred basis points. And then, and then cut a hundred basis points. Like, like I said, at the beginning, I don't think they're going to go to zero, zero rate policy unless something really bad happens, but I think they're going to start to get their, their cadence on, how to adjust policy and not just go in one direction, 500 basis points, and then 400 basis points in the other direction. It's too disruptive. Yeah, I completely agree with you. But so basically everything that we've talked about so far feels like maybe we're not on the edge of Armageddon here, but there are definitely some tremors starting to form both in the economic data and in the markets. And you know, one emerging narrative that you've highlighted that feels a little funny given all of this data that we've just gone over is people seem to think, oh, well, yeah, the rest of the world, they are certainly due for a recession, but I don't think that's super likely to happen over in the U.S. for X, Y, Z reasons. Do you detail, you know, where do you think that narrative comes from? What are those X, Y, Z reasons? And do you think that's realistic that the U.S. could sort of be the shining city on a hill while the rest of the, the world is mired in recession? No, I mean, I think it's it, it probably starts off with, uh, as we discussed in the beginning for pre-show, the hopium idea, right? Like as you described it, and I, <laughs> exactly. and, I, and I agree with it. There is hope. There's a lot of hope that somehow we can avoid the worst case, uh, and the U.S. being you know still the largest economy and it's been performing relatively well versus its peers, but again, still decelerating. Let's not forget that we had a boom bust and we're basically growing one percent or less. Which you know the margin of error falling into a recession is very high when you're at, the, at this low growth rate. Uh, so I think there's just this idea that somehow U.S. will always kind of pull through it, and I think they will, but not until we actually see some of the issues that I dis- discussed in the beginning uh, get addressed, and, and and also the Fed having to eventually uh, t- turn the corner and have to re-steepen the yield curve and get the banks back engaged. Like we we haven't even touched on the banking part yet, which we can if we have some time. But I do think that, you know, the banks themselves are introducing a form of tightening, which is, hasn't been fully felt yet. And so, like, the, the Fed's at odds with a, a lot of pressures against them. They have this one tool or two tools, but they don't really focus on the QT as much as they should. Uh, they're focusing on the rate channel. And um, I think that, you know, they're, they're overshooting in, in a big way. Um, but yeah, th- this chart that we have here on the screen, if, if, if we're looking at uh, it. Is- even, uh, sorry, before we get into yeah. that chart, Jared, I would like to poke a yeah. little bit at, at what are your thoughts on the banking situation? Because it's been, you know, looking back only about six to eight weeks since we've had a major bank failure, both in the US and abroad in the form of credit squeeze. People seem to have think that we've moved past the problem. I actually, I don't know if you ever read Matt Levine from Bloomberg, but I just love the the way that that guy puts it sometimes. And he had this great column today, which again, we're recording this on the 20th, which was there's a, he's, you know, to, to really paraphrase here, but it seems like there's a whole generation of asset managers, bankers, et cetera, that just didn't really account for the fact that rates might go up and that might cause problems for their balance sheet. He's, he actually, you know, he's got a much nicer way of saying it than I just did. But, you know, what's your sort of assessment of the banking situation? Are we past the bulk of the crisis? And, you know, if we're not, what is going to be the impact of the the credit tightening? Because we're definitely starting to see that. Well, this is the whole point. Like, as I, as I said before about the chicken and egg, and then in order for the banks to get some relief, the Fed's going to have to ease rates. But in order for the Fed to ease rates, we're going to have to either see inflation come much lower, much quicker, uh, which could happen. This idea that people have a dis, you know, the the immaculate disinflation that everything works out, inflation goes back down, and it's going to be smooth sailing. Um, you know, yeah, maybe that page over there. I don't know if you want to go back up, um, page twenty three. Um, 
I think that's probably the, the best one that captures all of these cycles where we've really only ever had two soft landings in the 1990s, mid-90s. And um, also, that's really the only other time in the mid-90s is when the Fed stopped, eased, and then hiked again, and then eased, and then hiked again. Like That was actually activist central banking at its best. I mean, during the 70s and 80s, that was really reactive and highly disruptive. Uh, those big spikes up and down, the one, two, three that I showed there. And then in the, in the late 60s, um, we had a, another soft landing after the Fed raised rates. But typically, Fed raising rates eventually does break something. And the banking system has been feeling the brunt of it. And if you don't you know, see rates head lower, then the issues that the banks have had in the beginning of the year haven't gone away. They're still sitting on unrealized losses. Uh, those those don't go away, and it does change the behavior of risk taking in the banking system. If you if you're convinced that the Fed now will never ease rates or is on track to hike even further, that makes the banks even more defensive, uh, and, and then both on their bond holdings, but also uh, on the uh, lending out through the credit channel, uh, which will then mean less loans for the economy, and then you get this kind of vicious circle. Uh, plus, there's existing you know, legacy lending. That was done at levels that you know the banks you know or you know if they, they had to mark to market also would experience losses, and then this is just purely focusing on interest rate risk, right? And the problem that like I feel like we're we we we're all in awe with the massive rate rise in rates, and that like yes, many uh, money managers as well as bankers uh, haven't seen it, including myself. I mean, I've been doing this for over twenty plus years. And the Fed never raised rates this fast in a short time period, uh, so we're all in awe with what they've done. But if then that rate risk morphs into credit risk, then 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 that's when the banks get even more risk averse, right? And that part hasn't really happened yet. We haven't really seen the credit losses pick up. And that to me is because the economy A is still relatively you know hanging in there and people are still willing to pay their loans and their and pay back to the banks. But at some point if we do get into a recession, you know, credit's going to get worse, right? And then you're going to see actual uh, delinquencies become defaults, right? And even this year, I mean uh, you know there's been a running tally of a lot of you know, bankruptcies already, right? There's been a lot of, you know, smaller bankruptcies and some bigger bankruptcies. Uh, but nonetheless, it's been one of the fastest years of bankruptcies. So, the, you know, the credit, you know, risks are surfacing. It just takes time as well. What's going on, everybody? Thank you for listening to On The Margin. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a very special offer that we have coming out of BlockWorks Research. Now, many of you will probably be familiar with our platform, but BlockWorks Research is the most blue chip spot to get research, data, governance, models, and a whole lot more about the leading DeFi protocols in the space. I've leaned on our analysts time and time again to explain complicated concepts going on in DeFi to me like I'm five years old. They can do the same for you. If you invest in DeFi or are just interested in it, it is an absolute no-brainer. As a listener of On The Margin, and to say thank you all for listening to the show, you can use Margin 10 for a 10% discount, and that gives you access to everything, which would be weekly in-depth reports, live data, all of that good stuff. So again, that's code MARGIN10 for a 10% discount. Link is in the show notes. Sign up now. Thank you later. George, can you give me a sense of, you know, because there's always that risk, right? And this is why central banks today are much more willing to go in and provide liquidity because a liquidity strain can quickly turn into an insolvency strain if it's not actually handled appropriately. So can you, you know, you, you, you're, you've been talking a little bit about maybe a, a hanging sort of credit event, right? Which would definitely spell even more trouble for the banks and lead to tighter financial conditions. Does that always tend to follow a liquidity shock or or it does it sometimes not end up materializing that way? Uh, I mean, it depends on the on the magnitude. So maybe let's go to page 26. This is actually 
one of my favorite charts that I've had for, right. for, 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 for uh, like literally decades. I've had this chart in, in many ways. I've told uh, both uh, my, my colleagues and, and clients and anyone in between, mm. this chart embodies basically the history of my career in many ways. This is like starting like from the late nineties all the way through today. And what I'm measuring here is two different um, money market funds, retail versus institutional. And then relative to the TGA, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners know what that is, the Treasury General Account and where the U.S. government keeps its cash and the swings of, of, of this liquidity. And if it, it's happening at times where uh, investors are becoming more risk averse and then moving into money markets or being attracted to money markets because rates are uh, higher you know, in money markets. You know, let's focus really on the purple line because that's really what's moving here. Mm. When the purple line um, uh, institutional money starts to kind of get defensive, uh, you know, and that's happening at the same time as there's either a debt ceiling issue that is then followed by a TGA rebuilding and restocking, uh, that could create um, you know a whipsaw in the liquidity and expose the have and have nots. So that, that's there's that dimension. Now what people are hoping for and banking on is that a lot of the money to, to help finance uh, the re- replenishing of the TGA will come from the um, from the RRP. But if you go to the next slide, you know, slide 27, uh, we just I mean, we just don't know how sticky some of this money really is and and what are the alternatives. Um, so like, you know, looking at uh, this is now the level. So the chart before was the change of these time mm-hmm. series. But now we're looking at the levels of money, institutional money and real uh, money market funds. And there's a lot of different things here going on. One, when again, when investors are getting defensive, they'll move into money or cash alternatives. You saw that in the number one, number two, number three annotated in this chart. But then look at what happened from like 2009 to 2019. Money market industry basically didn't move. And you'll if we have time, we'll get to another chart in a moment. You'll see a similar dynamic happened to the small and mid-sized banks as well. In other words, all the excess kind of QE money didn't go into the money markets and went into risk assets or to <laughs> other banks, right? And so like, yep. during that period from 09 to 19, there was basically only the large banks, foreign banks that participate with the Fed through a lot of these QE programs. Um, they're the ones that were the first kind of uh, recipients of all that liquidity. And, it, you know, and, and, and so that's, there's that dynamic, which is a whole other story. But like, but this this one, you know, you saw the the big rise after COVID when institutional money funds tapped their credit lines. But then it's been sticky ever since. It's not as if they paid they paid back some of their loans. You can see the little black line dipped a little bit lower. Yeah. And now that we're in a higher rate environment, actually, money is staying within money markets. Um, and there's only so much. Even if some of the, even if some of the TGA were to be replenished by the blue line. It's not clear all of it's going to be going down, and you're still going to see a lot of money outside of the traditional banking system, which then re- basically that, that's like inert money. It just doesn't doesn't flow through the real economy because mm-hmm. once it's in the money markets versus the banks, the banks can and the dealers can put it back into the system. Uh, I mean, repo could grow if money markets get more involved, but if they have a great alternative called the RRP, mm-hmm. that becomes like debt money inert sitting there. Uh, until the Fed drains it. So this is why the Fed really has to continue to shrink their balance sheet. They can't bank on the Treasury just issuing bills and that blue line going down. I think a little bit will go down and it has already. But if if it doesn't go down, it's going to come out of the banking system at a time where 
you know, liquidity is precious. Yeah. And and just because this this monetary plumbing can get very complicated really fast, would would you mind just sort of outlining the 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 importance of the reverse repo facility? My my colleague Jack Farley has done a great job with with Joseph Wang of describing how the the Fed funds rate has become more more important in sort of name only and it's less important as actually a policy rate and really the the rate that gets paid on assets that are parked in the reverse repo is is actually extremely important and we haven't really talked too much about liquidity conditions uh, at all but I'd love if you could give listeners sort of a high level framework for how they should be thinking of all these entities and then what does the liquidity picture sort of look like over the next uh, 6 to 12 months Sure. And so like the, this reverse repo program, which we call RRP for short, mm. uh, is another vehicle for uh, investors, primarily non-bank investors that use it, uh, deposit excess cash, or they can use it as an alternative asset because if there's not enough collateral or short-term treasuries or commercial paper or other short-term oblig- like uh, uh, securities that are in the system, they can depart- deposit that cash at the Fed. And as you can see, or you know those that are watching, you know, there's been an increase in uh, assets at the money funds. Both retail has been slowly grinding higher, very consistently. And then there's been this gap higher from institutional money. When that happens and there's not enough actual assets to buy, you can either sit in cash and earn zero, but that's not going to work out. Uh, and what happens is now that there's this reverse repo program that the Fed has, you know, these investors can park it at the Fed, and the Fed pays a rate that keeps the Fed funds target within a range. Because if it, if it, they did not have this tool, rates would basically collapse to zero or close to zero if they didn't have the RRP. There's bank reserves, which banks also you know, get paid their own different rate. Um, and then there's cash in everyone's pockets or, or, or currency in circulation. Uh, and then there's the, the Treasury's general account. And the four of those, as well as a few other items on the liability side of the Fed's balance sheet is what balances their balance sheet, right? It's those four moving parts. Those are the big ones. Uh, and the RRPs become such a big portion of the Fed's uh, balance sheet uh, that if they want to shrink it, the, you know, the balance sheet, they also have to shrink the RRP. So they have to find ways to encourage that. And, and so far, they're, they haven't, you know, Chair Powell was asked a question about that at the last press conference, and he kind of uh, kind of skirted it a little bit and is not focused on the balance sheet yet, but they should be because this is really where the rubber hits the road because now that rates are high, the only thing now that matters is the amount of liquidity in the system. Yeah. And you know what, George, you have this great phrase that I that I really like that I haven't necessarily heard before, which is the liquidity haves and have nots here. So I actually want to call on you before we sort of get to our our final wrap up sort of bigger picture questions. Can you just describe what you mean when you say the liquidity have and have nots? Sure. So, I mean, like if you look at page 28, uh, this this is looking at all the different QEs and how the Fed's balance sheet grew, the red line. And then, you, again, we have this uh, total banking system cash, which in many ways is the other side of the reserves that are in the system. Banks don't usually sit on cash unless it's either created or a lot of it was created during the QE mm. time period. Uh, and then there's the RRP, which is the reverse repo program. So those are the those are the big ones, right? Like those are the, the the banking system and the money markets. But if you go to the next page, this now breaks down that prior ch- uh, charts line of the banks into s- large banks, small banks, and foreign banks. So if you were to add up these three lines, they would add up to the total cash in the system. And you can see that it ebbs and flows with the different QE programs over time. And as I said before. Um, the small banks from 2009 and 2019 were not really recipients of the excess liquidity. That purple line is basically flat and growing at like a standard compound rate of like 3 to 5% per year, just standard growth of the economy. 
is what you know most small banks will see in terms of the deposit growth or cash savings over time. Um, but after the repo mania slash COVID shock and all the injections into the system from the CARES Act, as well as the Fed's actions, there's just a lot of extra liquidity in the system and it's made its way into the small banks. I mean, small banks have never seen that sort of growth before in their cash levels. Uh, but even before QT started, it was already starting to go down. So like these were signals that were already showing that there was have and have nots within liquidity. Uh, and then, by the way, this, these things persist. This is, this is pretty updated through last May, <laughs> end of this, end of this May. Like there's, there's this issue persists, right? So, um, you see the little red line and went higher. That's the large banks, you know, seeing a lot of the liquidity come their way after the uh, the banking turmoil of uh, Q1, Q2. But nonetheless, you know, we're talking about these dynamics are pretty much where we are today. And it means that if there's going to be further reduction in liquidity, it could disproportionately impact small to mid-sized banks more, all else equal. Right? This is a very, you know, very simple statement, but just looking at the data, this is what's been happening. And if it were to continue, to, you know, if we were to see further, further draining of liquidity, it probably would end up hurting the smaller entities more so than the bigger ones. And that's the whole point. Yeah. And you, you you mentioned this, and we've called that out a couple of times on this show, but there was a very pointed question to, to Chair Powell about commercial real estate debt concentration in the small regional banking sector. And they hold something like 70% of outstanding debt. And, you know, Chair Powell said to, to paraphrase a little bit, you know, something along the lines of, well, if they're, you know, diversified across a whole bunch of different holdings, they'll be all right. And if they're more concentrated, and he kind of shrugged his shoulders, you know, and I think that's that's all you really need to know. And I, I, I want to kind of start to wind down here by asking you some some sort yeah. of bigger questions. You you put together a great chart here, which which I really like, which is this idea of when you provide too much liquidity, it's extremely hard to unwind it. And it reminded me of you mentioned Stan Druckenmiller earlier in this program. I've talked about, you know, he gave this great interview recently. He did one at the Sone conference. I think it was probably about nine months ago now. And he has this quote that just really stuck out to me, which is, you know, when when interest rates are, are low for even a short period of time, people do dumb stuff. But when they're low for a long period of time, people do really, really dumb stuff. And I think that's the, that's the thing that if you've been paying attention to markets, you've maybe been scratching your head a little bit and wondering... Man, you know, I know there's been some banking stress, but where are the the fireworks that you would have expected in one of the most levered environments of, you know, in, certainly in recent history and one of the sharpest, uh, you know, fastest rate hiking cycles in history as well? And you just haven't really seen as much stress materialize as, as you might have thought. Why, why do you think that is? Well, look, I think it's, it's, it's the setup. That's the whole point. So this yeah. chart on page 36, I mean, we've never seen M2 growth that high in a one-year window, rolling, right? Just yeah. continuous waves of liquidity uh, and extra stimulus, which is still being working its way through. I mean, I think that that it just takes time to actually work its way through, which is why I think, you know, for now, the Fed could maybe look the other way if there were to see further bank issues. We'll see. Uh, but, you know, th th this is exposing, again, this have and have-nots. And the more and more that, you know, both M2 and other forms of liquidity continue to kind of chip away at the excess, it's going to expose you know, those that are more fragile. Um, yeah. And again, it hasn't happened because it's just been just that excess out there that always comes in when things start to cheapen up, especially on the market side. So the public markets have had this tendency to 
you know, buy the dip and to like look for value and everything's get cheap, not knowing what that really means, but there's more just like this kind of tendency to always, always see like a backstop coming in because there's excess liquidity in, in the, in the financial system. It's going to be much more trickier for like uh, hard assets, pri- uh, you know, yeah, commercial real estate, you know, we'll see how private credit, um, fares in this environment because uh, now that you know again i think fed's going to try to keep rates as high as possible now their funding costs have changed in a, in, a, in a material way which they're not used to after you know multiple decades of low rates and qe so yeah i think that's that's where where you know it's, it goes you know as i said twice before it's impatience there's a yeah. the markets just are they want to see results now on all these actions but we've had a counterbalance that's been providing like um a lot of just this this pool of liquidity underneath that's prevented uh, you know things from really repricing as they should, but doesn't mean it won't happen. Yeah. So what, George? You're saying that human human beings are impatient and they want things to happen immediately and no delayed gratification. This is all news to me. That's crazy. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Who would yeah. who would have thought, right? Who would have thunk it? Yeah. Well, so one thing, um, you know, I've been a little bit curious about and would maybe poke at you at is. You know, when you mentioned that if for those of you for those who are operating under the assumption that QE is going to be the same as it's always been and uh, you know, the Fed is gonna ride in here on their white horse, that's that's not gonna happen for myriad reasons. Maybe the number one of which is that we have inflation and it's definitely politically less popular now to pump infinite money right into the markets than it than it was in the past. I, I think though a trend that I don't see how they're going to buck this, to be completely honest with you, and maybe you can help me out a little bit, is even if you rewind the clock back to when the great financial crisis was going on and they were proposing TARP, you know, the unthinkable amount of money, right, that they came up with was $750 billion, right? And now, I mean, that's, come on, that's a that's a drop in the bucket compared to, to, compared to what we've had to spend. And even though we're reining yes. back on the monetary side of things, we're still running a $2 trillion per year deficit for the next 10 years. So it's just hard for me to see. I, I hear you on the inflation side of things and why it might not be as politically popular. But you know, for the life of me, I just can't understand how the next intervention wouldn't need to be as large. You know, Can you help me kind of parse that out? No, that's a, that's a great observation. And it's true. This is why many of us will normalize data and say, it's relative to GDP. It's actually the same level, right? Like right. But the nominal value is like, 3x what it was 10, 15 years ago, right? So we're we're always you know having to kind of benchmark what you know this really means in the grand scope. Uh, and um, in the grand so scope. I feel like that's a great observation. Um, I think that the guardrails that are now basically being enforced is is the inflation picture. It is the idea that you know, there's we need to have some fiscal constraint, although. You know, there could have been more out of the debt ceiling deal, but nonetheless, you had something take place. And by the way, they're gonna have, they're gonna have to come back to this time and time again, right? So the debt ceiling dance that we do happens you know, more often than I'd like to see. Uh, but you know, it's that's 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 still out there, and you can argue the merits of it. But that's not the point. The point is, just, it's still a sort of guardrail. And then the question then becomes like, you know, what is our priorities, both as a nation as well as you know, as an economy of like. What are we trying to target and like and, and really grow the economy to become in the future? Uh, and so, if that like you know requires a lot more government spending, but it comes at the expense of less innovation in the, in the private sector, that's going to set us back in terms of real growth, right? So, I think it's it's you know we, again we're trying to figure out that balance. It's not an easy answer. I wish it was. I mean, otherwise policymakers might be able to figure it out too. But I think that it's more about the idea that look, we're going to 
We're going to have more targeted stimulus going forward, both from the Fed as well as from the fiscal side. Uh, and the, the the numbers might become bigger over time, just naturally. That's what happens. Yep. Uh, but I don't think this this idea that you can just like with a paint with a big broad brush and just dump all this money into the system and you hope that it finds its way into the right channels. I think those, those days are numbered. I hope I'm right. Mm. Um, because I think that's, you know, we'll be better off for it in, in the long term. So I think that's what we what got exposed through this, you know, this massive experiment uh, that we're going through and, and hopefully, you know, we'll be, we'll be better for it in the future. Yeah. I guess in, in closing, in closing here, George, I would love to, you know, if you were in chair Powell's position or the fed, you know, how would you be thinking about reacting here? You mentioned that they they might have some short of the the infinite money QE bazooka. They might actually have some tools left in their tool belt. So how do you think they're thinking about things right now? I mean, are they making the right decision in terms of their, you know, the, we're, talk, we're recording this in June. So their last decision was to pause and they're signaling two more rate hikes near the end of the year. Are they are they doing the right thing, do you think? Or if you were, if you were in charge of the monetary system of the free world, would you be making different choices? Well, I mean, look, who knows? I mean, we all, none of us have a crystal ball, including the Fed, mm. uh, but we have, you know, the, the information at, at our disposal and some of us, some of us have better tools and experience than others. And like, that's really what we have. And if you look at page 40, it's a really kind of walk through because you, you tee yeah. up the question. I think this one answer is like, what would I be doing at this point? I think at this point, you'd be starting to slow down. You would, you would, you would actually start to highlight the, the growth risks, not just the inflation risks. Mm. Overlooking the growth risks, I think, is going to come back to them, uh, and and they're going to realize that all these indicators were right, maybe a little bit early because of of, of a calibration issue. Post pandemic, things are just uh, not the way they used to be. But I don't think the curve is wrong. I don't think all these other indicators are wrong. It's just a matter of the timing of things lining up. Um, and once the job market finally starts to go, um, like having to to pivot so so hard. Is going to actually uh, be a negative in the mind of the market. So saying like you got this wrong, you should have been slowing down and not tightening as aggressive. You overdid it. Uh, so I think you know reintroducing an easing bias by the end of the year and actually maybe following through with it, and tr- that that's a way you might try to soft land. But the idea of just staying tight, 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 and then hope that you can pivot and that you're going to catch it the right way. I think that's what's going to get them. That they. That you know that they they've over overstayed their 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 welcome and tightening side, um, but they're doing it in many ways um, to try to allow this liquidity to continue to drain out through QT. So, I think it would be this idea of this like they should now use this opportunity. You know, this, the, like this whole thing of physics. You know, a body in motion stays in motion, right? So when you're mm-hmm. hiking, like that's an easy message to deliver. The next meeting, you hike again. You just keep hiking, hiking, hiking. Now they have a pause. It should be a pause to reflect. They have to reflect on all of their cumulative actions, and they have two tools going on at once, which is the rate channel, very high now, which we haven't seen in many years, and arguably it hurts a lot more now because we have a lot more leverage in the system, and the liquidity side, which you know the system has gotten used to all this excess liquidity. So if you're trying to drain that and keep the price of money super tight and high, uh, that you know you need to like explain why are you doing it, and then start to also talk about the balance sheet more, not just the rate channel. If they were to do those things and start to walk this down uh, towards, eventually they're going to have to introduce uh, insurance cuts at some point, because I do think that we're heading into a slowdown. The banks will need a steeper curve to re-engage in lending. And also, uh, you know, we'll, we'll eventually see that we're late cycle, maybe already in a recession. But again, that's what 
I think should be doing. <laughs> we're in the business to try to figure out what they're going to do next. And I think we're, you know, 50, 50, that they might try to hike one more time. And I think that might be a policy mistake at that point. You know, you know history will be the, the judge of that. Uh, but, you know, I think that they've probably done enough as it is focus on the balance sheet on explaining why they have an enlarged balance sheet. If they're trying to shrink the RP, figure out a much more dynamic way um, of scaling down the size of the RP without it just being relying on the TGA side of it. Uh, and then, you know, and then see what, see what kind of economy we get in the next six months to a year, but we'll see. <laughs> that's what, that's what I would be doing. Yeah. Yeah. I tend to agree with you there, George. And, you know, some some small part of me thinks that sometimes we look at the Fed and, you know, we try to really get in their heads and assess and what, you know, what could Chair Powell be thinking here and yada, yada. And, you know, I think that the objective has been pretty clear and very, you know, uh, succinctly stated since the beginning, he's very concerned with beating inflation and restoring price stability. And even though we have- Whatever it takes. Yeah. Whatever it takes. And even though- yeah. We've seen Fed funds yeah. climb above CPI. We know that what they really care about, right, is core PCE. That's their preferred measure of inflation. And that has still been persistently strong. So, you know, I, I don't really want to go out on a limb here. There are so many people that are better Fed watchers than me. But, you know, if I had to put myself in, you know, Chair Powell's shoes, you know, a pause is waiting. I think they're just sitting there, fingers crossed that that core PCE measure trends down. And then they can say in a couple months, we're data dependent. And the data has showed us that inflation is finally turned over and we're not going to get those hikes, you know, so. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I really that. hope that's the the environment. It still doesn't mean you don't run the risk of that becoming a, still a policy mistake in the sense that you've done a lot already. And then you might get the aftershocks, which will be financial in nature. Yeah. If it's purely just macro. And again, we have the, this, this, you know, this uh, immaculate disinflation and everything kind of stabilizes and they are able to ease in a, in a very orderly way. Then that's actually great. I mean, that's the environment that, that we should all hope for. Uh, they don't. They're not admitting that because they're they're trying to say that they're tough on inflation and they're trying to win that war first. But the real war is trying to pr- like have a sustainable recovery. Like we need a sustainable recovery that benefits all. And I think like they're gonna have. You know, it's gonna be hard to kind of thread that needle. Yeah, I agree with you there, George. La- last question for you, and then I know we've got to run. You know, one one question that I thought was super interesting from the last presser is, you know, again, there was there was that reporter who sort of has said something to the effect of, hey, uh, we know you're doing what you can on the monetary side of things. Your fiscal policymakers, right, they are the ones who are still saying, we want to spend $2 billion per year. In 10 years, we're going to have a $50 trillion uh, deficit. And I know you mentioned, you know, the, the scale of the intervention sort of scaling with GDP, but debt to GDP has been going up as well. And, you know, I guess in closing, my closing question to you is, you know, it seems Chair Powell is actually very dedicated to bringing down the inflation problem using the monetary tools at his disposal. Is Can he be successful, though, if the fiscal policymakers seem to still be on the spending warpath? Because that seems like that's making his job harder. <clears throat> Yeah, look, this 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 uh, this topic we could probably spend another another whole yeah, yeah 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 it's a whole other topic. But I mean, if you if you want to sc- scroll back to page thirty eight, yep, this is comparing real rates versus the inverted debt to GDP, and you can see that we've we've been able to take on more and more debt because our real costs have been coming down up until the last year and a half, right? Like at at a, at, a, at some point, you know. Fed policy, which is also driving overall rates higher, but at some point the bond market or the bond vigilantes, whatever you want to call them, the bond market will step in and say, you know, the government's spending too much and or if the government's spending too much and that's resulting in higher rates or a crowding out of the economy, things start to short circuit anyway. 
We're not yet there yet on the short circuiting because overall rates are still historically not that high. But in terms of future debt growth, if we're going to really see like just nonstop deficit spending, it's going to you know result in slower economy over time. And, and we can't afford high rates like this because eventually, still, like, as I say here, somebody has to buy all that debt and it cannot just be the Fed and it's going to have to be from the private sector. So that will just crowd out credit. Yeah. George, um, unfortunately, we're at the end of time here. I wish we could have kept going for that 15 or 20 minutes because I am just very interested in this idea. But um, guys, if you've been listening, I'm sure you've probably come across George before, but highly recommend that you go and follow him on Twitter, check out more works. George, if people want to find out more about you or follow you or, or subscribe or whatever it is, what's the best way to do that? Sure. I mean, so I, I also do a, a, a bi-weekly podcast um, uh, at MEOG Podcast. You can, guys can subscribe there. Uh, I also post them on Twitter, so you're probably better off just waiting for me to post them on Twitter, and I'll explain like the overall logic of the podcast. It's like real time, kind of forward looking, like what to think about in the markets and the economy and in, in the in the near term. Uh, and of course, my, my my handle is at Bond Strategist, so that's the place where to to follow the work and the, the stuff that I'm looking at. Great. Thanks, George. We will link all of that in the show notes. Really appreciate your time today. Had a great time uh, talking. We'll have to do it again soon. Yeah, me too. Thanks for all the questions. Appreciate it. All right. Cheers. Bye. Bye.